I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Is the Golden Bachelor Bachelor Gold Edition? It's Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. On today's show, The Golden Bachelor. It's uh, the latest edition of the now, I suppose, classic reality TV show. This time, it features a 72-year-old bachelor and a bevy of women in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s competing for his love. One hesitates to say it. We'll say love. Uh, It's on ABC. And then many people regard Stop Making Sense as the greatest concert movie ever made. Now, 40 years on, it has been restored and re-released. It stars, of course, the legendary rock band, The Talking Heads, and was directed by Jonathan Demme. And finally, Kunis, Kutcher, Drew Barrymore, Russell Brand. I'm sorry, what is it with all the apology videos? Uh, Or maybe non-apology videos we will discuss. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, uh, film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey! Great to be back with you both. I know. Very good. Should we make? Uh, should we make a show then? Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, let's do it. All right. The Golden Bachelor, the Bachelor franchise, got a little long in the tooth. You could argue. I think its ratings were down. Some of the heat was off it. The solution was to make it longer in the tooth. Lean into it. The new edition is The Golden Bachelor on ABC. Its title character is Gary Turner, a Midwestern septuagenarian widower with uh, an arresting blue-eyed stare. The show follows the usual format. It's women looking for love, and they vie for a desirable, supposedly desirable man's affections. Uh, how does this format fit in with, you know, very grown-up grown-ups. In the clip we're about to hear, we hear Gary addressing all the women as a group for the first time. Let's listen. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Trisha. You're welcome. Get comfortable. By all means, get comfortable. (laughs) I was standing out front just now, and it occurred to me that I'm way more nervous about this speech (laughs) than anyone I've ever given before. I thought I had it nailed. And then I met all of you. And it's like, that's all out the window. I mean, in this room, there is beauty and poise and intellect. You've really inspired me. So I would like to propose the toasts to all of you. Let the journey begin. This is the most I've smiled in like forever. It means so much to me to have this second chance at love. I really need to get time with Gary tonight. I can't wait. Gary, can I talk to you for a minute? Absolutely. My pleasure. So it begins. (laughs) All right, Julia, let me uh, start with you. Steve, I'm just going to interrupt you right there. Let's start with you. I'm not sure all of our listeners will remember that you are a Bachelor devotee. (laughs) <laughs> and that The Bachelor is the one reality show that you have ever plighted your troth to. And that for some years, we haven't talked about it in a long time, you were an absolutely devoted watcher. So, like, I want to know, I, I'm happy to share many thoughts about this show. But, like, w- let's get to the point here. What did you think of The Golden Bachelor? I would like to... um plead the European right to be forgotten here. This is America, Steve. No way. <laughs> hey, it's pointing... He, as he taps his chest, it's Europe in here, Julia. All right. So <laughs> I, it's true, had a weird affection for this format early on in the history of both it and reality TV. I, I guess in some weird way, I felt as though to the extent a reality format can squeeze something like reality to the surface and then have it captured on cameras, I was astounded at this, you know, particular format's ability to do that. I thought that the show in a weird way was a rebuke to more innocent notions of what love is because it does or can involve rivalry, obviously, status, um, idiotic longing, exhibitionism, you know, performative selfhood. I mean, it, it was too simplistic to say there's this authentic thing called romantic love and this inauthentic thing called reality TV. And in fact, the truth of both came to the surface in making them collide. But it got, I mean, it, truthfully, it got tiresome. So let me try that one more time. Julia, <laughs> uh, 
isn't it sort of counterintuitive to revive this particular franchise um, by going into this age category? And what did you make of the results? Well, so I never had any affection for this. It's always struck me as just absolutely cringe-tastic and... I hate how false it is. I hate how repetitive it is. I hate how they preview the crazy moment and then they post-view the crazy moment. And Anyway, the thing that this struck me as is an effort to re-inject sincerity into the proceedings. Like, at this point, none of the marriages last, none of them stay married. It just seems like a thing that people who would like to be famous but aren't that good at acting do. And transposing it to the romantic world and lives of 60 and 70-somethings, including our bachelor, Gary, who's lost his wife and speaks very movingly about, you know, ending that chapter of his life and his mourning and wanting something new. Um, It seems like the promise and hope of it is to take seriously the romantic lives of people we don't see having romantic lives on television very often. And so that was interesting. And he's very winning. Like as, as a bachelor, he's kind and sincere and charming. My favorite moment is when he gives that speech we heard earlier, he's holding a glass of orange juice and it's unclear whether just like his drink is a screwdriver and he wouldn't not have a screwdriver. It just looks ridiculous for him to be holding a glass of orange juice. And I don't, I don't know if he's sober and just literally having orange juice at 11 PM or, or having a screwdriver, but the orange juice was just the best detail. Like when you're 72, you just tell the producers you want some fucking orange juice. And you won't hold a, a, a flute of champagne just because it's the rose ceremony or whatever like I love that about it that everybody's sort of set in their ways um so I liked that that seems like the hope of it I also had some there are ways in which I think it deflated a bit from that promise as it went on but curious Dana what you made of it I mean deflated a bit is putting it mildly the first I don't know, whatever you call it, 10 minutes, the first segment before the first commercial break of the show is extremely sincere and heartbreaking. And it's, you know, him telling the story of losing his wife of 43 years, essentially a few weeks after they moved into their retirement dream home and were about to start a new phase of their lives. It's utterly sad. They show him with his daughters and his grandchildren. You know, you just get a sense of him as a real human being and really sort of feel like, I want something good for this guy. And, you know, let's see how they turn this around. And after that first commercial break, it is, to me at least, as somebody who only has watched these things in the context of talking about them with you guys on this show, indistinguishable from any of these other dating reality shows. You know, except that there's a lot of sort of cutesy, self-congratulatory, you know, humor about, about how everybody is older than your average bachelor or bachelorette contestant. Otherwise, it's completely identical. And I would say that whatever this show is doing to counteract ageism, which is a question whether it's doing anything at all, it is more than compensating for that and how incredibly sexist it is. I mean... I, I just I couldn't stop thinking, Julia, about Jessica Defino's newsletter that we've talked about on the show before, the unpublishable, this kind of beauty industry criticism newsletter, and you know just her her writing about interventions and plastic surgery and beauty standards for women. It was just nuts that all of these women who range in age, I guess there's a couple dozen of them, and they range in age from about 60 to, well, the oldest one is is 84, but she's essentially included as a joke, right? She's kind of like the funny joke contestant who happens to be Jimmy Kimmel's aunt and, you know, who's sort of like a funny, you know, not glamorous older lady who's stuck in there, I guess, to be like comic relief. Anyway, Every single one of them other than Jimmy Kimmel's unglamorous aunt is just like tricked out. You know, I mean, I have no know what they've had done to themselves, so I won't conjecture about it. And it's their own business. But all I'm saying is that they are all upholding the sort of like long non-gray tresses. Maybe a few of them are touched with gray, um, you know, bodies that look like an aerobics instructor, you know, tight, shiny dresses, whatever. Just also, I mean, you have to say the Golden Bachelor is a very conventionally handsome man, right? But this the standard, the amount of labor that these women must have put in to have that appearance for this show, it, it, it really depressed me all around. Yeah, Dana, I, I'm with you on uh, most, if not all of that. I mean, there are as I see it, there are two foundation stones to reality TV in general, nubility and lack of self-knowledge. And you're trying to make a reality show without them, you know? And and I think it's important to reiterate 
Dana, what you were alluding to, which is that the format of this show is inherently cruel. Um, the Bachelor or Bachelorette effectively has to lead something like initially maybe 10 or 20 people on, and then through a sort of Darwinian winnowing, the feelings become more intense as you approach, you know, the kind of money episode where you have two people and, you know, it's designed in the last instance to produce maximum heartbreak in one more than it is designed, as Julia says, to produce lasting connection or love, much less marriage between the winner and the bachelor. And here, Right. There are sort of two possibilities, right? One is that you obviate a lot of that because these are people in kind of a don't give a fuck stage of their lives somewhat. They've achieved far more wisdom. Their expectations for what life and love can bring them is realistically scaled to the constraints of human existence on and on and on and on. And it might have had a kind of dignity. On the other hand, these people i have to believe are unique they and they seem to me uniquely vulnerable there are not numberlessly more days in their life with which to get it right and so you know there's a a desperation there that's heartbreaking and very real and very understandable and so your face julia once again with the classic do i look or look away dilemmas of television i mean i i I suspect as we go, these women are going to become only more real in in a good sense, and that I think that there are obviously real human beings and really deeply lived lives behind these expectant faces, but it just ups the stakes of like the ultimate train wreck. You guys are like perversely making me want to defend the show, which is not a response I expected to have, but <laughs> let me give it a whirl on two points. One... I actually found that there was much less desperation in this. Like part of Mm -hmm. what made it more palatable to me is that these people have been around the block and they've lived lives and they don't see this as their ticket to fame. They don't see this as their ticket to stardom. They don't see this as their ticket to a family and children. They're just kind of like got some time and don't have a partner and have whatever broken brain cell that makes you consider ever going on a reality show in the first place. And why there's like a quality of why not to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I kind of liked the like, yeah, I could play Canasta or I could do this. Let's give it a whirl (laughs) spirit. Like I enjoyed that. Similarly, Dana, I, I, I feel two ways about your point about the sexism of the aesthetics of it. I enjoyed the kind of, slick yellow primetime camera appreciating the desirability of a bunch of women in their 60s and 70s. Some of them did look um, Botoxed to within an inch of their lives, but some of them didn't. And uh, just the notion of like, wow, you're beautiful, directed at a person in that age, of that age range, wearing whatever getup they were wearing, just that felt perversely radical to me the part where it did fall apart for me is the camel the jimmy kimmel aunt cameo i guess i guess this is some ongoing bachelor shtick with kimmel i gathered from reading about this afterwards but i like didn't get that she was a joke contestant and not a real contestant and she walks in and you're like oh yeah that's what (laughs) that's what many women this age actually look like like uh she's got a very forgiving tunic and she just looks like a normal person uh and i didn't get that 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 was the joke that anybody who looked like a normal person couldn't possibly be an object of desire and that was very disappointing and i felt suckered at the end when she like snores away the ceremony because obviously she's not a contender because she's jimmy kimmel's aunt and she wears a tunic and like that that was so depressing it undercut the whole my whole other somewhat positive response to the dopey physical appreciation of these older dames yeah very depressing and 
I mean, it's made all the more cruel by the fact that Gary Turner's actual wife that we hear about at the beginning and we see some photographs of them throughout their marriage is a normal looking person. She's not in her later years, some super glamorous Botoxed person. She looks like a middle aged lady who is not particularly glammed up. So clearly he has managed to have a very happy life with somebody who wasn't dressed like a Barbie. I mean, part of the agony for me of seeing them arrive in their limo and that ridiculous, I guess it's like a bachelor trope, right? Where they all arrive in this clown car limo and come pouring out of it was that they're almost all wearing sky high heels and i was just thinking yeah. like really <laughs> you know i'm a whole generation younger and i don't put those kind of shoes on any anymore you know even for the fanciest of occasions like i am not going to torment my feet and spine in that way and more power to them if they want to wear those shoes but there was just a little bit of a sense of you know just a rigidity to like there has to be this look there has to be this kind of barbie turnout you know in order mm-hmm. for this person to appear from the limo i mean what if somebody had come out that was neither Jimmy Kimmel's comic aunt, nor like, you know, 67-year-old Barbie. What if somebody had gotten gotten out who was wearing like sneakers and I don't know, like a fun <laughs> sweater? You know what I mean? Like somebody who was dressed like a normal, comfortable human being of their age. Is that somebody we're allowed to see on television? Mm, I mean, presumably not. Yeah, the this edition is just caught between like, not dead yet, you go girl, and ugh. You know, you'll never be free of this this beauty standard. All right. Well, it's The Golden Bachelor. It's on uh, ABC. Um, but before we go, we should mention that another Slate podcast, The Waves, will be recapping and reviewing every episode of The Golden Bachelor. Those recaps will be hosted by Shana Roth from Slate and Laura Stasi host of the podcast, Dating While Gray. So if you would definitely subscribe to The Waves, you can hear those episodes every Friday morning in your feed. Okay, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast. We pause and uh, discuss business. Dana, what do we have? Steve, we have only one item of business this week. It is to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, at Julia's request, we're going to talk about a TikTok meme about men who frequently think about the Roman Empire. Apparently, this was rocketing around TikTok and other social media sites in the last couple weeks. I don't really quite get it, but I think we're going to have a fun conversation about why and whether any of us get it. Uh, So if you want to hear about women asking the men in their lives how frequently they think about the Roman Empire, listen on. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of this episode. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for membership, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described in which Steve Metcalf will tell us how often he thinks about the Roman Empire, and you'll also get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. You'll also be supporting our work and the continuation of our show and many other podcasts. These memberships matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. All right. Well, 40 years ago, the Talking Heads were a downtown art band that had already improbably hit the commercial big time. Then its lead singer and songwriter, David Byrne, decided to craft a stage show in keeping with his training and sensibility. It drew on Japanese no and the avant-garde theater of the director, Robert Wilson. Byrne created something unprecedented in rock and roll. Stop Making Sense is widely regarded by me included as the greatest concert movie ever made. Those concerts date from 1983, hence the 40th anniversary The movie came out in 84. It's been refurbished and re-released. It's out in theaters now. It stars David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, Chris France, and Jerry Harrison, a.k.a. The Talking Heads. It was directed by Jonathan Demme. And the clip uh, doesn't need much of an introduction, but here they are playing Burning Down the House. All right, Dana, let's uh, start with you. Um, I'm assuming you'd seen this before, had you? 
Oh, yeah. I've so seen this before. <laughs> I was trying to figure out last night, watching it in the theater, how many times I've seen it. It's not that I've seen it countless times. It's that I just have such intense memories of seeing it. Uh, so it came out when I was a teenager. And I remember a period of time, it must have been the fall of 1984, the year it came out, when seeing Stop Making Sense was sort of like the party thing to do. <laughs> you know, the way you might go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show or something like that. Go with a group of friends. There was dance, you know, people would dance, they would sing along. And this is the case with people who are not necessarily big Talking Heads fans. You know, I mean, I went to a high school where it was probably a lot more people into hair bands and things like that at the time. You know, and the Talking Heads were considered maybe a little cerebral and nerdy, or maybe people didn't really know their music at all. It wasn't super far into the Talking Heads career. And this this movie was a hit regardless. It was just so much fun to see in the theater. So I probably saw it at least twice on, a, on the big screen. Then I remember seeing it after the, after Jonathan Demi died. I wanted to watch some of his movies and was thinking about him. And, you know, everybody was writing such wonderful things about him. Went back and watched Stop Making Sense on the small screen. And that was great, too. And then last night, seeing it with my husband, who's about my age, and, you know, I think has similar memories of excitement of the moment of it coming out, um, we couldn't believe how fresh it still felt and how extraordinary uh -huh. a, a cinematic experience it is. And people in the theater seeing it with us, nobody got up and danced, but, you know, people were clapping after individual songs as if they were at the concert <laughs> right then. And both of us walked out saying, it is imperative that our daughter and her friends, who are almost all performers and into performing, see this movie. Like, if their teachers don't take them on a field trip, then we will take them on a field trip because, you know, it, first of all, it's just incredibly fun to watch. But I also just think anybody who wants to think about performance and how to build a performance and, you know, what it is to create a work of art that's interactive should see Stop Making Sense. Because not only does it record an extraordinary concert, which it was actually built, I think, out of four different performances of the same concert in the same theater, you know, on consecutive nights, uh, but it's a total feat of filmmaking. And also, I don't go on for too long. I will save my thoughts about that, about Jonathan Demme's way of filming a concert for, you know, my, my next rant. But <laughs> I'm so happy that A24 which seems to have their finger on the pulse of everything that distributor uh, has seen fit to restore and release this movie. Yeah, Dana, it's not a rant when I agree with every word, by the way. <laughs> Julia, what'd you uh, make of the movie? So I, you'll be shocked to learn, had never seen this movie. And um, I was knocked out. I had the best time. Uh, my husband and I went, we took our 10 year old boys. We decided that they were also ready for this. And they, um, they claim that they did not, that they were underwhelmed, but in fact they were transported and they've been insisting on listening to the talking heads ever since. Um, but I, as we were going in, I was like going to give them some premonitory patter of like, you know, it's not going to have a story like, you know, basically articulating my own fears about going to see a concert documentary, which is not a form I like that much because I like stories and I like words. Um, and then I was like, you know what? I don't need to lay my concert aversions onto them. I'm just not going to tell them anything. And then the thing that is so impressive about it, in addition to just the, the glory of the music and the way in which it's... Um, the, the feeling it evokes of like kind of cosmic awe at the unlikeliness of being alive. Like that is the feeling I often have listening to talking heads music. So I like the music in general, but the thing that struck me about the film and the way that it interacts with the show as it's built is how beautifully it calibrates little dollops of change and interest and tension. Like it knows exactly when you're going to get bored and does something interesting at exactly that moment. But the interesting thing can be so small, like it doesn't need to be, if, if, if you just think about the volume at which our attention is generally manipulated by entertainment and by Hollywood right now, it doesn't have to be the world's gonna end. It doesn't have to be gray people sweep in from the sky and CGI and we blow them up. It's literally David Byrne puts on a red hat for like mm. four minutes and you're like, oh, now he's got a hat. Cool. <laughs> okay. He, he, he took the hat off. Oh, now the lights are like this. Whoa. Like, and you're like, great, that's enough. That's like a new thing to look at. I can think about that for a minute. Like just the low key, low fi precision with which it just ratchets up your attention and meets you just at the moment when you want something new to think about. It's so perfect. It's just, 
extraordinary. Yeah, it's a triumph and it's new and fresh today as it was when I saw it when it first came out in theaters. Hadn't seen it since then, not in anything like its entirety, uh, both times in the theater. You, if you can, you have to see it in the theater if you're interested. Um, so many things struck me at once, but I'll start here. The Last Waltz, maybe the other candidate for the greatest concert movie of all time, was filmed only seven years earlier, right? So think about the journey that music, rock music, pop music has traveled in those seven years and how much of that journey is thanks to that one scungy downtown nightclub CBGBs, right? The Talking Heads, the Ramones, television. Um, you know, I mean, there's an elegiac and quite beautiful and affecting quality, The Last Waltz. It's Martin Scorsese film. I mean, it really is an extraordinary document, but it's overwhelmingly elegiac to the point where anything like it after it was going to be repetitive and stale. But, you know, music really remade itself. And a lot of that was due to uh, the head. And then it makes you realize, like, you know, Byrne was just a non-musician when he started. I mean, think about the journey he traveled musically from a guy who could really sort of barely sing and play. It is astonishingly hard to walk out alone on stage with an acoustic guitar and do what he does. He starts the whole proceedings. That is an incredible performance. Can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous. Can't relax. Can't sleep. Bed's on fire. Don't touch me. I'm a real life wild. Psycho killer. I don't know that I fully appreciated it when I first saw it. The amount of brio and, and frankly, just raw talent it takes to create that level of interest and intensity. And it's got a high wire quality. And he immediately tells you right up front from that psycho killer that he opens with that he's going to both totally inhabit and deconstruct the type known as rock star, which he goes on to do in every frame. You know, it. the one quibble I, I have, well, I have two Issues is the wrong word, but two questions really about the movie, which is that at that point they were becoming a big band and they had a large sound and they add, in the end, they have added backup singers and backup musicians. And there's a gigantic sound that I think really works for those who aren't super familiar with like more songs about buildings and food and, you know, other of their early albums. The music from the beginning had this jagged, really forbidding, really ominous feel that I think is still there. It's absolutely, you can't lose it because Burns at the center of it, but you see how they became a commercially big band and that's the phase they're in. And then the other thing I wonder at is just the use. And I asked this advisedly it, I think racial politics and optics have changed. Thank God since 1983, it is interesting that you have white art student band surrounded by black supporting cast in a way that I think that they're playing with and deconstructing, but at the same time indulging in a little bit. And I'm just wondering if that struck any of my co-panelists. It's interesting coming to the film without really knowing much about the history of the band. Like one of the other gifts of Demi's filming of the talking heads, the staging of this is, is the attention to the relationships among all the performers in their building of and appreciation of the music they're building. And so the way that it's filmed does not treat the additions to the stage and the additions to the sound as supporting performers. I mean, ah, obviously Byrne is the, is the star, but the film, the film centers them all. Yeah, I agree. And just quickly, Dana, before I pivot back to you, just even the gesture in 1983 of the two black background singers, backup singers, being at the front of the stage with Byrne on a plane with the quote-unquote stars and totally integrated in. They're not like on a little riser in back, half-lit or something. Um, it, it That was obviously intentional. But Dana, talk to us about Demi uh, and, and how he, as you see it, made this you know masterpiece. 
Yeah, that was the that was my my second speech that I wanted to make, which is just uh, trying to think through as I was watching it again for probably the fourth or fifth time last night. Why is this the greatest concert documentary of all time? I feel so strongly. Well, of all time would imply that I've seen them all, but that I have seen, uh, and I feel still strongly that it is. And it's funny that you mentioned the last waltz because after Levon Helm, the drummer for the band, died, I wrote something about him for Slate where I talked about his strong dislike for The Last Waltz and said that in a strange way, while it's an important movie, I kind of agree with Levon Helm. I think that The Last Waltz feels strangely um, airless and that mm. there's something about, I, I, you can see that it's the record of a great performance and that the audience you know, loved that performance, but there isn't really a sense of the interaction with the audience. There's something that feels sort of like, um, the fourth wall is closed off about it. And the fourth wall in this movie is not at all closed off mm. to the extent that David Byrne and one of the um, one of the players, I think he's the, maybe the, the other guitarist, at some point interact with the camera, you know, like stick out their, ch- their tongue at Jonathan Demme behind the lens. Like there's really a sense of cameras moving around the stage. And I think a big part of it had to do with the fact that Demme used six cameras, right, over four different nights and managed to, it really feels like one complete and holistic performance, right? But it's, as Julia says, you're always sort of looking at something different and interesting while sensing that there's interesting things happening on other part of the stage. And it never just feels like this flat proscenium where you're just watching some people perform for you, which in comparison with almost every other concert movie I can think of, including The Last Waltz, is not really true. There's a real depth to the stage, and there's a dimension and a sense of movement through it and storytelling. And you have to see the movie to see what I'm talking about. But it's kind of miraculous that that Demi accomplished that in the framework of a concert documentary. All right. The movie is Stop Making Sense. Its 40th anniversary uh, edition is now in theaters, uh, check it out. It's just amazing. All right, you're famous. You screw up. What do you do? You call your team. They click into action. The lawyer, the PR flack, I don't know, image consultant. Who knows what such people are called? But not anymore, really. Now you click record on your iPhone. Uh, you sit there with very little makeup on and speak directly and candidly to your fans and to the world. The apology video is getting quite the workout recently. What with uh, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher uh, making one that went very viral for which they got a second backlash. Initially, what they'd done is they sent a character letter to the judge in the sexual assault trial of their former colleague, Danny Masterson. That was a huge backlash. They tried to stem it with the video. Why don't we start there? Um, why don't we listen to a clip from that? We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters, to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read um, and not to undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that. And we're sorry if that has taken place. Our heart goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or rape. Oh my lord! Uh, let's uh, let's start with you, Julia. What do you what do you make of that particular document and the trend uh, which it's part of? Well, what's most interesting to me about this? So I watched that video when it first came out, and just was astonished by the aesthetics of it, the way in which it almost feels like they sat down and wrote two different speeches and then tried to interlace them as an art experiment, the tonal difference between the two of them, where she sounds like she's in a stilted hostage video and he sounds like slightly more, like there's there's differing levels of emotive skill happening. I don't know. I just was like, what's the deal with this? And then the Drew one came right after. And it is a micro trend in those two. And and there was a Russell Brand one as well. But it's like not actually a very big trend. Like in general, when you screw up, you write a notes app apology and then you post it to your socials, you know, and like your choices are do you do the dark mode or the, you know, do you do black on white or white on black type? 
And that's how you apologize for the most part in 2023. And so my question is just like, are these people bored and insane because of the strike? And so they like must be on camera and they've decided to, to, to apologize in this non, non-functional way. I think these examples will quash any burgeoning trend that might be happening because they don't seem successful. I mean, I totally agree. You, the virtue of not only of the notes app Instagram route is that if the language does sound a little stilted or vetted or antiseptic, well, you, you know, you leave people to assume that a lawyer demanded that they vet it or even write it. And the legalism is a sad reflection of our own overly litigious society and not of your total lack of human empathy on contrition. So, um, but once you're on a video and once you're saying it, no one's really going to take that excuse anymore. You're really owning it. Yeah. It's interesting because actually a couple people in my life prior to the video posting had been thinking through with some empathy, their position, right? If someone, you know, and worked with was being sentenced and you knew their family and the family at like the, the, the question of like, would you, try to help them get a lesser sentence, whatever the charge was, was, was on my friend's mind. And I, I was sort of arguing the counter of like, ah, no, man, if they get convicted of that, maybe you just walk away. But like the, the question of what position, like they, the, they're, they're, and, and this friend was not the only person, like a couple people were thinking through like, what would you do in that position? And so it's not as though <laughs> what they had done had, elicited no potential empathy in the world. But then when you hear them say, our heart goes out to all victims of everything ever, you're like, your heart can't actually, like you so, whatever whatever someone might have imagined for you is the complex rationale you would have for wanting to help your friend's family who were the innocent victims of whatever your bad behavior was, like they just seem so dim. And that's what's so different. I mean, I don't really have strong views of either Ashton Kutcher or Mila Kunis as actors or people. Like, I've just never thought about either of them that much and certainly don't come into it thinking that he's a better actor or person. But it's really interesting in the video how, like, I feel like if he had just done his half of it, it might not have been such an abject failure. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, the part where she seems like a robot at gunpoint saying all these nonsensical, not that they're nonsensical, they have sense, but they're, they land as non sequiturs because they're not really about explaining their behavior. We support victims and have, and have always done so and will continue to do so. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's so terrible. It, it, it's just not the right way to do it. One thing that struck me, I went back and watched, um, uh, the video that Logan Paul made apologizing for the video that he and his crew had made um, when they encountered a suicide in Japan. Um, and it's actually a really good apology video. I mean, I don't know enough about his work. What it spoke to to me is that this is a person whose training is in speaking directly to camera to fans, which is not Ashton and Mila's training or Russell Brand's training. Like his whole thing is I am conveying a self to you, the YouTube user. And he actually just straightforwardly apologizes for having made a huge mistake. I've made a severe and continuous lapse in my judgment and I don't expect to be forgiven. I'm simply here to apologize. So what we came across that day in the woods was obviously unplanned. And the reactions you saw on tape were raw, they were unfiltered. None of us knew how to react or how to feel. I should have never posted the video. I should have put the cameras down and stopped recording what we were going through. There's a lot of things I should have done differently, but I didn't. And for that, from the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. It's just actually very good. It's like I watched a bunch of them. I went and that one is the only one that suggests that this is a forum that anybody should ever do. And I think the fact that he's a person whose fame literally is because of his um, skill at speaking directly to an audience he's cultivated by speaking directly to them through the form of internet video 
is maybe a, um, it's like the precursor question you should ask yourself if you ever find yourself thinking about making a public apology. It's like, is this what I'm famous for? Okay, then proceed. If no, then no. <laughs> right. <laughs> like draw one of those diagrams with arrows. I, I think even calling these all apology videos is really stretching that term to be such a broad umbrella. I mean, Russell Brands, for example, really is the opposite of an apology. It's a mm-hmm. self-defense, yeah. right? Um, and and Drew Barrymore is, is the, the video where she says, sorry, guys, but I am going back to my show, you know, before she walked that back because of the terrible reaction that that video post got, was this really, really morally garbled kind of defense. I believe there's nothing I can do or say in this moment to make it okay. I wanted to own a decision so that it wasn't a PR protected situation and I would just take full responsibility for my actions. There are so many reasons why this is so complex. Mark Harris, the film critic and film historian, tweeted something great about the, that Drew Barrymore video where he was saying, well, if it doesn't make any sense what she's saying, if it doesn't make logical sense how she's defending, you know, I support the strike, yet I'm going to be a scab and start my show again, it's because it doesn't make any moral sense, right? And when people speak in that kind of garbled language, it's because they really know at some deep level, maybe just unconsciously, that there isn't any defense for what they're doing, you mm. know, but... But when you're in the midst of performing a defense of yourself in front of a camera and you don't really have a defense and you know it, of course, you're going to come up with a bunch of garbled nonsense. Right. Right. I mean, I think this raises a couple of interesting issues. One is, um, you know, we shouldn't let apologies off the hook as a more general category. They're actually quite ambivalent, possibly dubious categories of speech um, to begin with, because I don't know, I mean, I guess they are sort of rooted in some Christian confessional tradition of in the moment of speaking something, you enact a ritual, important ritual of atonement and therefore invite forgiveness. And so the question is always, well, are they sincere or strategic, right? It attends any attempt to apologize. Are you, you know, Yes, this is in a large scale, just reputation management. And we can probably assume this may be totally insincere on the part of these people who have a huge economic stake in um, their Q rating or how they're perceived by the public. But um, uh, Julia, am I barking up the wrong tree here? I mean, I just think, like, no, don't you feel think, a certain confusion right. over apologies, both giving and receiving? Well, maybe it's just when you add the word public in front. Which actually brings me back to the Logan Paul video, which I would encourage you guys both to go watch it, because I think as a text, it's unimpeachable. Like what he says, go find an impeachment. I'm sure it is impeachable. But it's like after watching a dozen of these that are just insane as as pieces of text and as pieces of performance, um, it's straightforward. It seems sincere. It seems genuinely chagrined at a human error made. And yet... What is the point of it being something I can watch seven years later online? The point of that is for me to know that he knows that he made a mistake. It's not a private apology to the family of the person who they were disrespecting with the original video, right? He mentions them in the video because, again, it's unimpeachable and you would have to mention that family. But he doesn't just like go home, turn off his money-making YouTube accounts, apologize to the family and get a job at Starbucks. Like he's <laughs> still out there doing whatever he does, you know? So that that is the part of it that you can criticize is that the point of the public apology is to get back on the right foot. But I don't know, in personal life, like I think apologies are so important and making them, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, I, I, I actually think we can all learn in our personal apologies from the way that public apologies get criticized. And maybe that's the best thing about the public apology. Like I was just advising another friend this week who was trying to apologize to someone for something and they sent me like the text of the text they were going to send. And they did the classic, like, I'm sorry if you felt blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mm-hmm. meh, 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 meh. Like, yeah. nope, yeah. nope. You can't, can't apologize for how they felt. You can only apologize for shit you did. Like, edit, 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 <laughs> you know? Like, and I'm not sure... I would be so sensitive to that if we hadn't all been making fun of of celebrities for 20 years or 40 years or however long for um, 
for making mistakes in that way. So maybe that's part of the point of the public apology is to model what makes one good. Because we do, I think in your personal life, it's not all about laundering your self or it shouldn't be Mm -hmm. if it's good. It's about recognizing that you can have an impact on things and sometimes you fuck up and and sometimes you care that you fucked up and you wish you hadn't. So I don't know, maybe we can all learn from their examples. Mm. Beautifully said um, and here, here. All right. Well, uh, this is one of those things I imagine we might get some really interesting emails on. If you uh, have one you want to send, we'd love to read it. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what uh, what do you have? Steve, because we talked about a, a great concert doc, Stop Making Sense, on this week's show, I'm going to endorse a... Um a great live show that I recently saw, the the band that did that show, and generally following them and seeing if you get a chance to see them live, because it really was one of the most unusual and beautiful and moving live performances I've seen in a very long time, if not ever. Uh, there's this married couple named the Bengsons, Abigail and Sean Bengson. They're apparently Brooklyn-based, although I actually saw them during a residency they were doing in San Francisco last month in August. And it's really hard to describe what the Bengsons do. I guess it's a form of sort of folk rock, but when you and it's acoustic and you know it's sort of like gentle music in that sense. But when you see them live, it's an extremely intense and involving experience that's more like performance art. Um, Abigail, in particular, who I guess you would call the lead singer, they both sing and they both write songs, but she sings most of the songs and plays keyboards and drums and beats sticks on the stage and does all kinds of other things. Um, is just a radiant, intense, wild sort of stage presence who is really, really into audience interaction, but not in a corny sort of clap along, call and response way in in a way that really gets the audience emotionally involved. And their songs, like the Talking Heads songs, actually, are almost never love songs, you know, or conventional formats of songs. They're very existential. They're about life and death. They often contain sort of long spoken word passages, but you don't feel like you're at an arty spoken word slam poetry event. You feel like you're at a really fun, raucous kind of hoedown sing-along. This is the keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on song. This is a keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on song. This is a keep going, keep going. And they're just crazy good. So um, I'm not exactly sure which albums to recommend. I think they haven't made a whole album since 2020, but they have a YouTube channel. Uh, they have a website and they tour all over the place and do various things around the country. So look out for the Bengsons. It's spelled B-E-N-G-S-O-N-S. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I want to check that out. Um, Julia, what do you have? All right. Uh, it has occurred to me because I have been listening to my mega mix for Summer Strut nonstop since we recorded that episode that I could probably just endorse individual other songs for my <laughs> strut contenders for like five months. So I'm not sure whether I will do that consistently, but it is what I am doing today. And the song that I want to endorse is called Stop Talking by Mia Follick. And it is about the the refrain is stop talking about that boy. And it's the exasperated lament of a friend who has seen her friend's brain eaten by a hopeless and ill ill considered crush or relationship. I find myself floating away outside of space and time. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but I think I'm losing my mind. Stop talking about that boy. Stop talking about that boy. That's a very specific emotion. We have all been there. Like, oh my God, stop talking about that boy. Like, this is not a good use of your time and energy. Um, and then it has a beautiful chorus that's that has as part of its refrain um, something like we become the things we say, which is about actually how you can frame your desires and attentions with what you choose to spend time talking about and harping on. Um, anyway, it just... It spoke to me. It reminded me of, I don't know, times past with friends. And it's also just got a a banging pop vibe to it. So Stop Talking by Mia Follick. 
Yeah, I mean, any any callback to that list this year was just a, it was a great, great, great list. I've been listening to the the playlist over and over. All right, so as listeners may know, every now and then I take a beautiful little offering and I lay it at the doorstep of uh, Julia Turner, um, and it typically is jazz piano that it t- doesn't have to be. Like for example, Sonny Red, the uh, saxophonist, made an absolutely flawless record. I wasn't familiar with it, fell totally in love with it. And lo and behold, Julia, um, felt the same way as I understand. Anyway, I have another one and I, 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 it's so good. Like it's, it doesn't seem real that there's a jazz record this good that so few people know. I mean, it has like a, each cut has a few thousand plays on Spotify if I remember correctly. So the person who made it isn't totally unknown. His name is Lucky Thompson. He was a saxophonist. I think he played tenor alto and soprano, but I think mostly known for alto. Um, He, uh, his heyday, I guess, was he came out along sort of in the bop era and was always kind of a second fiddle to, you know, much bigger names. And um, as uh, I've been told by a friend who who would know such things, he maybe suffered from mental illness, and it was a very hard struggle for him. But he was an incredible musician. I mean, I, I just think a really beautiful, technically accomplished, expressive player of the highest order. I mean, I just couldn't love his music more. And he did make a couple albums that are super highly regarded and not totally obscure at all. Lucky Strikes is uh, considered his masterpiece, and it's you know, it's it's up there with the Sonny Red album. It's great, but he, nobody seems to know that he that there was a. It came out as a CD, I guess, in the '90s, and it captures a set from the late '50s that he did in Paris. It's called "Lucky in Paris." Um, I I I can't even tell you how perfect this record is. Anyways, Lucky Thompson, it's on Spotify. It's called Lucky in Paris. It, it's just up there. It's up there with like my four or five, I think it's going to end up up there with my four or five favorite um, jazz records of all time. Wow. Anyway, check it out. Okay. If anyone who has any Lucky Thompson, you know, opinions, stories, anecdotes, vignettes, or history, please share them. Um, anyway, there you go, Julia. On your doormat. I rang the doorbell and I decorously walked away. It's there for you to pick up or not. All right. I will try it. Thanks, Julia. Really fun show. Very much so. Thanks, Dana. A delight. Thanks, Stephen. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm